Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, John Kay. Me, Clive Roslin. And me, Tony Honigberg. Coming up this week, we'll hear from Laura Marks, who's the chair of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. She'll be talking about a letter she's co-signed to the Facebook founder and CEO, Mark Zuckerberg. Richard Benson tells us why he's teaming up with a member of the Muslim community to tackle hate crime. And Jewish author Gemma Wayne on why she's decided to reimagine a Hindu text for children. But before that, here's the news this week. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn accused the BBC of having a bias in favour of saying Israel has a right to exist in an Iranian TV interview that has resurfaced this week. The Labour leader was urged to clarify controversial remarks made on press TV, Iran's state television channel some years ago, where he appears to question the presence of the Jewish state and its nature as a democracy. He said, I think there's a bias towards saying that Israel is a democracy in the Middle East, that Israel has a right to exist, and that Israel has its security concerns. Jennifer Gerber, director of Labour Friends of Israel, said the Labour Party is now defending Jeremy Corbyn peddling wild conspiracy theories and questioning Israel's right to exist on Iranian state TV. Let's be clear, she said, for a party which aspires to be in government, this is not normal behaviour. A spokesman for the Labour Party says Jeremy is committed to a comprehensive peace in the Middle East based on a two-state solution, a secure Israel alongside a secure and viable state of Palestine. Labour's dropped its disciplinary action against MP Margaret Hodge. The party threatened to take action after the former minister branded Jeremy Corbyn an anti-Semite and a racist to his face during a confrontation in the House of Commons. It came just hours after the party's governing body provoked anger by adopting a code of conduct, including the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, but without all its accompanying examples of contemporary Jew hate. After the news that she wouldn't face disciplinary action, Dame Margaret tweeted, Just to be clear, there have been no apologies on either side. And one of Britain's biggest donors to Israel has said she'll now be more choosy in selecting causes as she condemned the nation-state law, saying, My Israel has died. Dame Vivian Duffield, the driving force behind London's JW3, who also backs a wide variety of education and arts projects in Israel, described the new act as an apartheid law similar to South Africa a few decades ago the news this week. Thanks, John. First on the Jewish Views this week, we have Justin Cohen, who is the news editor of the Jewish News, and Justin joins us to review the copy of the Jewish News for this week. So we're going to look at the front page then, and I see you've got John Landsman on there. What's happening there? Yeah, no surprises that Labour anti-Semitism remains uh, front page news. So I think that's uh, might be four weeks in a row now. This week, we've got a story, exclusive story. We've spoken to sources close to John Landsman, the founder of Momentum, who have said that John Landsman is in fact in favour now of the full IHRA definition with all the examples. So this is quite a significant thing because he's obviously a key ally of Jeremy Corbyn, mm. someone in his inner circle. and He's departing from the party line quite clearly here. Will he? Do you think he'll stay in momentum and and run that, or do you think he'll pull away from them? I, I think uh, he's he's remaining where he is. No reason to think to think not. 
it's quite interesting because if on this he's he's taking a different line from the party as he did also with the uh, issue of, of of Margaret Hodge and Ian Austin's mm-hmm. cases where he apparently reportedly said that that was a mistake pursuing an action against them. I suppose this is different in a way to Tom Watson, the deputy leader of the party, saying, "Look, recognise the." definition of anti-Semitism, withdraw from the case against Margaret Hodge and the other MP as well, which is, you know, more or less what has happened. But what do you feel about Emily Benn, the granddaughter of Tony Benn, who is very close, or the late Tony Benn was very close to Jeremy Corbyn in terms of beliefs, who has actually disgusted by what's been happening with the anti-Semitism row, and has said it really won't improve until Jeremy Corbyn is no longer leader? I'm, I'm hoping that Emily Ben will actually be writing for for the paper next week. We've been speaking to her a bit a bit this week as well, and, and yeah, I mean, those are pretty stark comments. She is the granddaughter of, of Tony Ben. It'd be interesting, of course, to think what he might have made of all of this that's been going on now. But you know, t- to be fair, there are a lot of people on the on the left of the left of the party who have been critical of the party's handling over anti-Semitism. But Tom Watson comes from a very different political hue to Jeremy Corbyn. John Landsman is one of the people that propelled Jeremy Corbyn to power and remains a key ally. And if you look at the uh, the abuse online that Watson faced, the uh, resign Watson hashtag that was trending overnight at the weekend, for people close to Landsman to be suggesting he's ready to take the same position, I think is pretty significant. And inside the paper, of course, we've got Dame Vivian Duffield, who is complaining or not happy with the uh, national state law that has been brought in in Israel. Well, on the front page also, we've got a picture from a big demonstration that took place at the weekend involving the Druze community. A hundred thousand people again taking to the streets of, of Israel to to complain about this new state law, which of course moves Arabic away from being a kind of a preferential and official language. And so the Druze community are particularly upset about this. There have been a number of people within the upper echelons of the Israeli government who have expressed concern that the Druze community are concerned about it. And we now have a story about Vivian Duffield, Dame Vivian Duffield, who, of course, will be known to our listeners as the driving force behind the JW3 mm. Community Centre. But she also, through her foundation, is a massive, one of the biggest funders of good causes in Israel, yes. education, science, uh, the Arab community as well. And she has described this law as an apartheid law. She hasn't minced her words in any way. And she's saying she's going to you know, think more carefully, more carefully and be more choosy about the causes she supports in future because of it. And it's probably not your place to make a comment, but do you think Israel will turn the state law around to take in the because of the Druze community more than anybody else? I would be surprised if there's not some kind of movement on mm-hmm. this, but it would be a massive climb down for Netanyahu and, and, and those that have supported the law. So I'm not sure what what shape that might take. And it's a couple of weeks on from it actually being passed now. We've yes. seen a number of protests and no sign of any movement, it has to be said. Netanyahu is very much sticking to his guns. As he does with lots of other things, of course. And another story is Mark Zuckerberg and the uh, Facebook pages with Holocaust deniers and everything else. Yeah, there was a lot of concern a couple of weeks back when uh, Mark Zuckerberg suggested that they weren't going to 
remove Holocaust denial content from Facebook. And he backed that up in a subsequent interview. Now we've got a letter from 23 organizations involved in Holocaust education across the world, including a number of organizations in this country, the Holocaust Educational Trust, the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, and so on, who have signed this letter. What they're calling for is a meeting with Mark Zuckerberg, of course, is the founder of Facebook to discuss practical steps that could be taken to educate the Facebook community about the Holocaust and counter some of this vile stuff that we're seeing online. And a final story, then I understand that Maureen Lippman is going to be on Corrie. Yes, she always told us that it's good to talk. And now she's going to be doing a lot more of that on primetime television when she joins the cast of Coronation Street. And I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of fans that are pleased to see her in, in such a prime slot. Often you hear about her on, on stage or in, mm-hmm. in, in small productions, but this is a, a big gig for her. Interesting, too, that Jack Rosenthal, her late husband, was involved with Granada Television in its early days in the 1950s. And all these years later, here's Maureen Lippmann going back to Manchester and taking part in what is presumably their major series. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice touch. That's where we'll have to leave it for this week. But thank you, Justin, for joining us here. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. The leaders of 23 worldwide Holocaust education centres have written an unprecedented joint letter to Mark Zuckerberg, the chief executive and founder of the social media site Facebook, offering help in tackling Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism. Laura Marks is chair of the UK Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, and she joins us from Israel. Hello to you, Laura. Hello, hi. Laura, do you think it'll do much good? This letter that is being coordinated by Henry Grunwald, who's chairman of the UK National Holocaust Centre and Museum, is it really going to achieve anything? Well, let's hope so. We are very aware that uh, Mark Zuckerberg has tried to distance himself and tried to distance Facebook over the years, actually, from the content of Facebook. And it's a very big issue as to whether or not they're a, uh, a publisher in their own right or whether they're just there to carry other people's information, other people's views. But either way, there's an enormous amount of Holocaust denial on Facebook. And we feel very much that it's time that that stopped and it's time that they took a much more responsible attitude towards it and really stopped allowing Holocaust deniers to be using Facebook as a platform. I think it's time that it was tackled. It was time that we spoke up. And to do it collectively, all credit to Henry for getting this off the ground, but to do it collectively is very powerful. I mean, all the major institutions in the world, pretty much, dealing with Holocaust are involved. And we all feel exactly the same, that Holocaust denial is a terribly dangerous form of anti-Semitism. And in the letter, we talked about how, first of all, Holocaust denial is anti-Semitism. I don't think people necessarily realize that. Secondly, Holocaust denial isn't Sometimes people are ignorant. Some people, sometimes people don't know what they're talking about. But usually it's because people have a deliberate agenda 
which is to downplay and trivialize or minimalize the Holocaust, which is about as offensive to Jewish people as you can get. And that also that Holocaust denial never leads to just anti-Semitism or, or anti-Semitism is never something that comes along on its own. Anti-Semitism always goes hand in hand with other forms of hatred. And when you look back to the Holocaust itself, actually, the first form of hatred may have been hatred against the Jews, but pretty rapidly coming along after that was hatred against all sorts of other people, people who are different, the Roma, people who we would nowadays call LGBT, people who had disabilities. One form of hatred tends to go with another form. And we really need Mark Zuckerberg to look at Facebook and say, we actually have to do something about this. In the past, though, he has said that Facebook won't take down Holocaust denial sites because he says he believes in freedom of speech. Yes. Now, freedom of speech does not allow you to have freedom to hate. There are laws about freedom of speech. You know, freedom of speech only goes so far. And so this idea that you can put anything online and anything is okay is just nonsense. And added to that, as Mark Zuckerberg knows well, different countries have got different laws about what's acceptable to say online and what isn't acceptable. And Facebook manages to accommodate the laws of the different countries. So not only do they recognize that different things are acceptable in different countries, but they've also got the ability to manage that technically. So this idea that you can say anything and that's okay, it's just a nonsense. The letter is being signed from people from Brazil, from South Africa, from Australia, from Yad Vashem. But who are the sort of people that can really influence somebody like Mark Zuckerberg? Isn't that more likely to come from governments or indeed from influential organizations within the United States? Well, maybe. I mean, we do have people there. Obviously, we've got very good connections with uh, Holocaust organizations in the United States too. But I think that the people who can influence him, I mean, governments can say you may not do such and such. But I think that really what we are dealing with in the world today is a need not only to stop people doing things that are unacceptable, but really ultimately to educate people as to why it's unacceptable. And until people understand why things are unacceptable or are expressions of hatred or are, in this case, anti-Semitic, until people understand that, we're actually not going to solve any of our problems. So it's almost like a a carrot and a stick approach. You know, there's an approach which says you must not do this, which might be a governmental approach. But there's also an approach that says, look, we have to explain to you and educate people, you, Mark Zuckerberg, and everybody else, in fact, about what is anti-Semitic about Holocaust denial, why it's anti-Semitic, why it's a problem, what sort of thing it can lead to, why it affects everybody, not just Jews, and why it's really unacceptable and dangerous. So there have to be all sorts of approaches, and, and we felt very much that an approach that said, let us sit down with you, let us try and explain it to you, let us educate you, with some of the best educators in the world, would be an effective way to move forward. If we start, or if Mark Zuckerberg starts controlling this and banning these people from talking, are we then not in danger of driving them underground, which is then more dangerous than having them open to talk? At least this way we know who they are. If we drive them underground, we don't know what they're up to. 
Well, first of all, on social media, you sometimes know who people are and you sometimes don't. It's not like people give you their name, address and telephone number and then you can phone them up and go and talk to them reasonably. No, that, that doesn't happen. No, but there's so more, way, the, more ways of finding them. One of the beauties them, of social of media and one of its biggest dangers is, is that people are effectively anonymous and you close them down and they open up again. So... The idea that they're going to go underground and we're not going to see them, I just don't think washes. They're they're going to carry on doing it if they want to. But we can put restrictions on what you can put onto Facebook. There aren't that many major platforms for social media. You know, there's Facebook, there's Twitter, there's Instagram, there's YouTube. There's not many more major platforms. And if the, the major platforms that exist... If instead of saying, oh, we're just a carrier, we're not really influential, if they recognize the importance of what they are and they all close this stuff down, yes, it might continue underground. Yes, it might continue, but nowhere near with the coverage that they get on these platforms. It's enormous. Are you then saying that the coverage they get makes more people join these these sort of people? Well, I'm no expert on the way in which Facebook or other forms of social media persuade people to join them. There are experts on this, but I'm not one of them. However, you can normalize normalize things on Facebook and on Twitter in a way that's very difficult to do otherwise. If millions and millions of people are hearing messages that denigrate or belittle or downplay the Holocaust, over time people believe it. In the same way as if you hear other hateful messages again and again and again, you believe it. And what's also very true is that whilst all hatred doesn't lead to genocide, all genocide starts with hate speech. So if you can start to address the hate speech, you can start to stop it growing into something much more awful. The Holocaust started with hate speech. We didn't have Facebook then, we didn't have Twitter then, but we had newspapers and we had pamphlets, we had flyers. And it started off with people saying vile things about one another. Now, we live in a world now where you can say vile things about people and you can say it to millions of people in a way that was unheard of then. And you can say it to them and you can say terrible, terrible things that go unchecked and unverified. And we've seen this whole sort of growth of uh, mass market false truths. So what you're particularly concerned about then, Laura, is the fact that Holocaust deniers and others will put material on. And whereas you and I might say it's a load of baloney and ignore it, you're concerned about the influence that that could have on people who are not aware of what's happened in the past. Absolutely. And one of the things I think that's very interesting about Holocaust denial is People don't tend to say there was no Holocaust. This didn't happen at all. It was complete fabrication. Much more likely and much more common is the sort of Holocaust denial that's more subtle. It's, oh, it wasn't really exactly six million. You know, the figures aren't quite right. And that particular survivor got her facts wrong. Or, well, we know that that particular incident might not have happened or well they were colluding with the nazis after all when those sorts of uh, of statements those sorts of doubts that you plant in people's minds are really dangerous nobody these days would come in with a sledgehammer and just say well there wasn't a holocaust was there because people don't believe it but you start to over a period of time with endless messages and endless doubt you 
you you start to get people to question whether the Holocaust was really as bad as all that. Did that many people really die? Is this those Jews just making it up because of all sorts of things that they don't want, they want to remain the victim? And and it's not just true of the Holocaust and Jews. This this would apply to any form of hate speech. So once you start to plant the seeds of doubt then you're on a slippery slope. And therefore, it's so important to stop it right now. Laura, we'll have to leave it there. Laura Marks in Israel, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. If you would like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at JewishViewsUK, or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with the Jewish News. And sitting in front of me now is Richard Benson. And I was told that he's the man who, and I've read, I'm reading a headline, Meet the Muslim and Jewish Hate Crime Fighting Duo. What exactly does that mean? Thank you very much, Clive. Uh, so, Fires Miguel, who heads up Telmama, which is the Muslim equivalent of the CST, and I got together in 2016 to discuss ways in which we can look at hate crimes across all communities and see if we can do something to highlight the excellent work being done by those that are upstanding and helping and supporting victims of hate crimes. So, not just Muslim and Jewish hate crimes. No, absolutely. This literally goes across all of the strands of hate crimes, the five strands of hate crimes, in fact, that the government talk about. And it covers disability, transgender, LGBT, and it also importantly covers the faith communities as well. It just so happens that it's a Jew and a Muslim that came together to look at this particular issue. Do not people find that extraordinary that a Muslim and a Jew are, are doing this? Well, there are many that would like the Muslim and Jewish community to stay apart and to not look at the uh, good side of things that are going on. But Fires and I have been working together on a number of community-based projects for the last eight years. So it was a, a natural partnership when we started looking at the best ways that we could look at hate crimes. Are you getting a lot of anti-feeling from some Muslims and some Jews? I would say that there are always those that wish to attack communities that want to work together. Uh, how exactly are you doing this? How are you getting around it and the things you're doing? In 2016, Fires came up with an amazing idea of an awards ceremony to nominate and to celebrate and to award those individuals that have been involved in campaigning against hate crimes. And after 2016, Fires and I sat down and said, how can we make this event bigger, much more high profile, much more national, and bring in all forms of hate? And that was really the start of the No to Hate Crimes Awards ceremony, which I'm pleased to say Jewish News have been a fantastic partner all the way through. So what exactly? Can you give us some actual examples of where you've succeeded? The first thing that was very important was to look at all communities, to look at what organisations are involved in campaigning and combating hate crimes and bring those organisations together. So in 2016, we had five organisations across the different communities who came together, sat around the table and looked at what we could do together to highlight those individuals, organisations and authorities that were campaigning. In 2018, we've now got 11 media partners, including Jewish News, The Mirror, 
newspapers and magazines owned by the Bauer Group, which includes Kiss FM, it includes uh, Closer, Take a Break and magazines like that. And we now have 34 hate crimes partners. So you can see that there's a real appetite for organisations involved in campaigning coming together and looking at what we can do together as against individually. Can you give it a, an example of one of them? Just one. So one of that them would interest us from a So Jewish one of them is absolutely uh, a kid called Jack, who actually was the star of a television program, uh, Educating Manchester, in 2017. He on television was being highlighted as an individual that was supporting Syrian refugees that were coming to his school. And it was very clear that one of the biggest things that he was doing as a kid of 11 years old was standing up to the bullies that were attacking physically and verbally Syrian refugees. And he was awarded at the event last year. And that really showed, first of all, how communities can come together. Secondly, that hate has no age barrier. And thirdly, that when somebody does something as good as that at 11 years old, you can actually be inspirational. We've actually used him as our, if you like, poster boy, going around, talking in schools and working with others to show that actually so much can be done if you actually highlight these things. We're talking here about, initially, about Jewish and Muslim. Was, it was, is Jack Jewish? No, he's, he's not, not Jewish, no. He's a Christian or non-Muslim, non, yeah, non yeah. non-Jewish. Yeah. Is your organisation facilitating others to combat hate crime or are you a movement in itself trying to combat hate crime? We're very clear that we're not an organisation set up to take over the work being done by others. There were fantastic organisations, one CST that I was chief exec for 12 years, Tell Mama, which fires heads, you've got LGBT organisations like Gallup, and you've got many others. They are at the front line of doing this work every single day. What we're doing is facilitating bringing all these organisations together, getting them to speak to each other, work together, share best practice, learn from each other, and as part of that, we want to take the best of the best, the work that's being done by individuals across the country, and highlight the work that they're doing. How successful have you been so far? Well, frighteningly more successful than we actually ever imagined. And the first thing that we were told was that we would never have got media partners this early on into something that was literally a blank piece of paper in 2016. So the fact that we've now got 11 media partners, the fact that the Mirror in particular is providing coverage across the entire country with all of their regional titles, the fact that you've got KISS FM, Absolute Radio, Magic Radio and all those other magazines very much partnering us shows that there is a success here because people want to show and highlight the good things that are going on. Now how is the work funded? It's all funded by private and corporate donations, but we're, as I said before, very conscious of not turning this into an organisation in itself. So our funding is basically looking at providing in-house management all the way through leading up to the awards on September the 13th and the venue that we're having the award ceremony in central London as well. But we're conscious of keeping our costs very low. We don't want to take money away from organisations that are really doing this work. How can our listeners help you? Well, the important thing is, and very pleased that the Jewish News are working with us in year three. Last week they did a, an interview with Fires and myself, and they have been running a series of articles and adverts. And if they go to No to Hate Crime on the website, just by typing in that, No, the number 2H8 
they will actually find the website where they'll be able to nominate individuals. The important thing is this is a grassroots initiative. We want people that are looking at this issue every day, people that hear about good things going on, people that want to make a difference, nominating people. Can any, can any of our listeners actually join your group and, and physically go out and, and find things and help you? Well, we are looking for ambassadors. That's the important thing. We want people to rise up to the hate that we're seeing across this country. And to give you an idea, in 2015-16, there were 69,000 hate crimes. By 2016-17, that had risen to 85,000. And we're seeing it rise even more. So every single day, something is happening across our communities, and we want to make sure it stops. So the more people that are rising up, the more ambassadors we've got, the more people that are prepared to say that this is not acceptable, the more people that can stand up on a bus when somebody's being physically or verbally abused and say, stop, we want them involved. So if there are any ambassadors listening now, how can they get in touch with If they them? go to the website, they'll be able to see a link there that will take them to basically show that they're interested in helping and in whatever way they can. That's either by being an ambassador, that's either by donating money, because we obviously still do need some money, or by nominating somebody. If people want to get involved, what is the actual website? So the website address is notohatecrimeawards.org, and that's the letters N-O, the number 2, the letter H, the number 8, crimeawards.org. They can actually see on there the different categories an opportunity to nominate people, and importantly, an opportunity to get involved in some way. Richard Benson, thank you very much. Thank you very much. If you'd like any more information on any of the stories or the guests that you've heard in this episode of The Jewish Views, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And in the studio with us today is Jewish author Gemma Wayne-Katan. And Gemma has helped to reimagine a Hindu text for children. Now, Gemma, how did you come across this book to reimagine it? The book is co-authored with a really old friend of mine, um, Sonal Sachdev Patel. And really, it started with her. It's a text that has always been really special to her growing up. It's one of the most revered Hindu texts. Her mother used to read it all the time. And when she had children, she started to think about sharing the same messages with them. And she started feeling that actually, although it's a wonderful book, it's actually quite dense, quite inaccessible. And she was finding it difficult to explain to her kids. So she wanted to try to create something that was relevant for modern children. And that's when she approached me to collaborate with her. So I was obviously coming at it from a totally different angle. Mm. And as a storyteller, what I was really listening to was not only, you know, are there messages to tell, but is there a story to tell, which gladly there was, and we can talk about more in a minute. But also I then wanted to think about, are these messages that from a Jewish background I want to tell? And the more we talked about it, the more I felt that they were just so universal. And so it was really something I was happy to get involved with. But was there a Jewish sort of Jewish Hindu link somewhere along the line? Because a lot of the Hindu texts, you can relate to the Jewish texts as well, can't you? I think that's something that you often find across all religions is that really, you know, we spend a lot of time finding the things that divide and exclude mm. and separate us. But actually what's at the heart of so many of our religions is 
a desire to choose to act well and it's just kind of an ethical code and at the very heart of the Gita is this message about the internal battle inside each of us that we each face every day and how to choose to use our good tendencies over our bad tendencies and that's really what we explore mostly in the book and I think it's something we can all relate to. You talk about the messages and you talk about how it actually transgresses different religions. What are the key messages, would you say, that are in this Hindu text? In the original, there's a vast array. It ranges from karma to reincarnation, doing one's duty. But the interpretation that we based our story on is from the teachings of an Indian saint called Paramahansi Yogananda, who Sonal has followed since she was about 11 years old. And his interpretation takes this battle, which really those who know the Gita, that's what they will remember from it, is there's this huge battle between two warring families that happens on a battlefield. And there's this moment of hesitation, which is what the Gita is. It's just one chapter of a much bigger text. Krishna comes down and talks to a warrior who is hesitating and isn't sure if he wants to fight. And he starts talking to him about doing his duty and he has to fight, which can actually be quite a difficult concept. We we might not all agree with this idea that we, we must fight. But the interpretation of Yogananda says this is not a human battle. This is about the internal battle between the good tendencies and the bad tendencies within ourselves. And that's why we have a duty to fight, because Of course, sometimes we have desires that we don't want to suppress, but perhaps we should because they're they're not constructive. What age is it aimed at? It's aimed at children from, we're saying kind of 9 to 12. It's kind of that pre-teen gap. But actually, I mean, I have a seven-year-old who's read it herself. I have a four-year-old who I've read bits of it too. And what we were really hoping is that It could always be enjoyed on one level just as a compelling adventure story. Much of it is just this magical, fantastical tale. And on another level, there are these other messages that hopefully will start to seep through and perhaps with age or with discussion with parents will kind of grow as as they go on. How does the original text compare to, or, or the text that you've written, compare to the original text? Totally different. No, nobody's really approached it from this way before, I've been told. What we did is because we were using this metaphor about from Yogananda about it being an internal battle, we transplanted this, this war inside the body of a young child who is struggling with his emotions. So our main character, Dev, at the beginning of the book, he's, his father has died recently and he's really consumed by his grief. He's angry. He's lashing out at everyone around him. And he's he's really stuck in that. And then he meets a sprite-like character called Sanjay, who is supposed to represent divine introspection. And Sanjay tells him about this war inside of himself, asks if he can go inside his body on a mission to find the noble warrior, warrior Arjun, who is the leader of the good tendencies, and ask him to fight the the leader of the bad tendencies, Prince Ego. Because what Yogananda says is that the tool to approach this battle is all about meditation. So we send our characters on a journey up the spine through the different chakras, unlocking these kind of magical realms with creatures and challenges that they have to face. And it's as they go through this journey, he starts to find that peace that that Dev the boy is so longing for. Has it occurred to you in a very strange way that this seems to be a children's version of the Kabbalah. 
it had not occurred to me. Well, it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, then that's just what I was trying to do. A Kabbalah, you're not supposed to start delving into until you're 40. Yeah. And it's amazing how this has a connection. Well, that's that's wonderful to hear. I'm I'm a couple of years off, so I've I've got a bit of time for that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I think that particularly for Sonal, the spiritual elements of it are what she really wanted to get across, as well as some other things that, as we went on, we started feeling were really relevant. For example, just that idea of meditation, introspection, ties in a lot of, to a lot of the discussions we're having at the moment about mental health and how we can arm children with the tools to deal with their emotions, particularly, I think, before they hit those really difficult years of adolescence. I think that's an amazing thing to do. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about the writing process? I mean, how did you and Solomon work together and how long did it take you to write the book? This was a very different experience for me because usually I write alone. I write for adults. And also I write just from the imagination. So there's nothing prescribed that has to be in the book. So this time there were certain things that had to happen in terms of plot, certain messages that had to be included. And it was very collaborative. So it was a challenge, but also really fun. As I said, Sonal is a friend I've known since I was three years old. Mm. So sometimes our our sessions, you know, if I had more chat than writing (laughs) so you know it was over a couple of year period that we created this but Sonal was very much the source of kind of Gita insight I did a lot of research too but having studied it for she's studied it over 20 years now she has real insights to it that were really valuable what's her working background she comes from finance originally but she left that a number of years ago and she works a lot she heads up a charitable foundation she does a lot of work in India particularly working with young girls And she also is kind of, she's begun looking at more creative pursuits. So this was, it felt like a natural timing thing for her. I took the lead on the text. And then obviously we also, it's an illustrated book. So we have this amazing illustrator, Sumitra Renard, who is Indian. He's an animator as well as an illustrator. And he's brought this real fusion of traditional Indian artistry with almost an anime style kind of illustration. Interestingly, the book is called Gita, The Battle of the Worlds, and your father, Jeff Wayne, was responsible for The War of the Worlds. Yes. He's a composer, of course. In, in terms of your upbringing, your Judaism was quite important to you, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Not in a totally conventional way. My, my dad is, he's actually the great-grandson of an Orthodox rabbi, but he would describe himself as an agnostic. My mum is more traditional with her practice of the religion. But so our dinner table was always full of debate and challenge. And it was some religion was always something we were very engaged with, but in quite a questioning way, which I think can be really great for an active faith. So for me, I've always felt very connected to the culture and the traditions, but possibly not the more legalistic side of the religion. How can people get hold of the book? They can buy it on Amazon. It is in some bookshops, but not everywhere as yet. So, yeah, Amazon is, is the best it's place. It's the prime place to get it yeah. at the moment. Okay. Gemma Wayne Catan, thank you very much for coming into the studio and talking to us about your book, Gita, The Battle of the Worlds. Thank you very much. And now it's time for our rabbinic thought for the week, which comes from Rabbi Stephen Katz of Edgeware and Hendon Reform Synagogue. L'shana tikatevu, may you, may we, be written for a good year. The month of Elul, 
begins the countdown to Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. The shofar is blown at daily shacharit services, apart from Shabbat. Psalm 27 recited, there are mezuzot to check, Rosh Hashanah cards to write and to send. Requests made for time off for work for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Above all, the mitzvah, the process of teshuvah, a self-assessment moral check on our faults and failings. There are relationships to refresh, to repair, to restore, ourselves to correct, to improve, much to be done that is essential to the quality of our life and those around us. The words Hayom and Bracha, today and blessing, feature in the Sidrot before Rosh Hashanah. Hayom Tam Tzenu, today strengthen us, is a key prayer in our Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur Machzorim. As we stand at the graves of our loved ones, filled with regret, maybe even shame, for the love we did not convey often enough, the hugs we did not give often enough, for the words of appreciation or apology often not conveyed enough, we truly appreciate the gift of the blessing of Hayom today. The process of Teshuvah urges us to make each day a blessing. Today is the only day we have. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow may not be ours. So Hayom today, if we begin with seriousness, integrity and resolve to engage in our mitzvah of teshuvah, our self-assessment morality check, then today can be a blessing for those we love, those with whom we share our leisure activities and our work activities, and for ourselves. What an opportunity, what a mitzvah, what a blessing. Our thanks very much to Rabbi Stephen Katz of Edgeware and Hendon Reform Synagogue for our Thought for the Week. And that's it for this edition of Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests, Laura Marks in Israel, Richard Benson, OBE, and author Gemma Wayne. Thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, John Kay. Me, Clive Rosslin. And me, Tony Honigberg. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Bye-bye.